be the calm in the storm. Family law matters are very difficult. And there are some days when I get up and think, today is going to be a very trying day because we have perhaps very high conflict people on both sides. I have a very difficult lawyer on the other side. And I know that it's going to be chaos. And you have to be quite comfortable with heading into a high level of emotion and chaos because often things get quite heated, whether we're in litigation or we're in mediation. And I try to remind myself, okay, if you get too personally invested in this and you start to get upset, no one is steering the ship. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. On this episode of Of Counsel, we're joined by Julie Stancieri. Julie is one of Canada's leading family law lawyers and lead counsel to Stancieri Family Law in Toronto. Beyond her remarkable case-specific achievements, Julie has a deep understanding and perspective of how family law affects those who look to the court for assistance in times of crisis. She's a lawyer who cares deeply about her clients and the quality of services she passes on to them. For her clients, she's a protective guardian of what is most important to them and what they stand to lose in the process. Outside of the practice, Her commitment to the advancement of the law and her own abilities is obvious. Julie holds a specialized master's degree in law and family disputes, an accomplished family law mediator and arbitrator, and an active member of the legal community with memberships in the Advocate Society, Collaborative Practice Toronto, and the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. Above all, Julie Stancieri is an inspiration to those who want to succeed and carve out their own way of practice in law. Listen to her as she describes how she became who she is today, and with some long and ambitious strides, how you might trace her path along the trail. Before we start our episode, I also want to say a special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. As all lawyers know, applying the law is not the same as knowing the law. This is where Lexis Practice Advisor Canada comes in. Lexis Practice Advisor Canada is a practical guidance product that assists lawyers in producing higher quality work in less time by providing authoritative content, easy to use practical tools, and access to real world insights. Practice area modules include precedents, clauses, checklists, and commentary, each authored by notable experts. On the topic of our guest Julie, there are two family law modules covering core topics for Ontario and British Columbia practice. Some of the notable resources and tools available in the Family Law Modules include over 250 precedents and clauses, resources for drafting separation agreements, financial statements, pleadings, motion material, facta, and offers to settle, quantums covering child support, spousal support, and matrimonial property. And, of course, as always, a special offer for our Of Council listeners. Receive three additional months for free when signing up for Lexis Practice Advisor Canada for one year. 
to schedule a tour of the family module and to ask about the three additional months for free, visit lexisnexus.ca backslash family module tour. Or you can visit our website, robishowlaw.ca and visit Julie's page on the podcast and there's a link right there to it. And with that, let's start our interview with Julie Stanchieri on this episode of Of Counseling. We're very um, pleased to have Julie Stanchieri with us today. Julie is a family lawyer, one of the best known family lawyers in Canada, has developed uh, an incredibly strong practice and very well known within the uh, Toronto Bar in particular. And this is our first time having a family lawyer on. So I'm, I'm very excited about this episode because we've constantly had um, people ask us, when are you going to get a family lawyer? Um, a lot of people obviously have interest in this because this is one of those areas of law that really touches upon people personally. You know, when you talk about things like uh, admiralty law or securities law, um, it's one of those things that you may develop. But family law, it's kind of thing that everyone knows about. Um, so I really... Uh, want to get into that because notwithstanding that, I think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about what it means. So before we get into it, um, Julie, I just want to ask you a little bit about um, why uh, you got into family law and and I guess even we back up a little bit more. Um, what started it for you? Uh, how did you even go to law school in the first place? Well, I'm one of those people that always wanted to be a lawyer. Maybe one of those crazy people that always wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, ever since I can remember, I mean, maybe I was seven when I decided that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And I don't remember exactly why, but um, it sort of always stuck with me. And as I got older, I tried to challenge it. You know, when I was in high school, I started to think to myself, this is a little crazy. Um, There's never really anything else that I consider doing. But it just always seemed to be a right fit for me. It seemed like lawyers were always able to say important things and do important things. And when I was growing up, I really, I really wanted that opportunity. I wanted the opportunity to be heard and to be able to have my voice heard. So I was pretty focused on my path. And fortunately, I got into law school. And when I went to law school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I kind of thought litigation because to me, that's what a lawyer was. I don't know where I developed that idea. Maybe Uh, American television like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But I went through and, you know, kept trying to think to myself, what am I going, what am I going to do after law school? Um, One thing I was really interested in is international human rights and uh, women's reproductive rights in particular. And I got involved with uh, Rebecca Cook and Bernard Dickens, and they did a lot of work in, in that area. And I managed to have some really amazing experiences. I after law school, got to do an internship in New York and work on some manuals for the advancement of reproductive rights throughout the world that individual NDOs could use. So that was a really rewarding experience, but I think there was something missing for me. My concept of what a litigation lawyer was back home, and so I returned. I had an articling position. I was fortunate enough to article at Macmillan. And at the time that I accept the articling position, Macmillan was one of the few firms that still had a family department. So a lot of, it was a trend, you know, there used to be a lot of family departments and larger firms, but then they all started to leave for various reasons. And this was one that was still there, and it was a really great one. Martha McCarthy was there, and just just in and around the time that I was finishing up law school, she argued M&H, which of course is same-sex mm-hmm. rights to, to support. 
So it was, it was, uh, you know, a no brainer for me because I thought I might be able to try out family law and also get more of a broad litigation experience. And then just before I started the firm, the family department left. So. (laughs) So you had to change. Well, I just (laughs) had to change uh, gears. You know, sometimes I look back and think, gee, I wonder what would happen if I had started just doing family law back when I articled. And I think the truth is I'm not unhappy of the way about the way things turned out because I ended up having a very broad experience. I articled there and I practiced for another three years and I worked with a lot of really interesting people there, mainly in litigation. That's where I spent most of my time. And the really great thing about working in a large firm in a litigation department is that you have access to different litigators and different styles. So you get to watch that and work on a variety of different types of claims. Like I saw large-scale litigation. I worked, you know, independently with different people on smaller files. I had a few of my own files and I got to do um, some things under their supervision. I learned some really great drafting skills. I think that's where I learned to always over-prepare and that most of your argument can be won in advance with your drafting. And all of those things, I kind of learned how to be a lawyer. They gave me some very good basic skills that uh, I've certainly never forgotten. I'm really glad you say that because uh, we've heard in some of the other episodes where lawyers will say you have to uh, make a choice very early on. And we've heard um, stories where, you know, or advice rather, that if you, you go to Bay Street, you're kind of stuck with it. And I think that's what a lot of younger lawyers think that, you know, I have a passion for family law or immigration law or human rights. But once you get lured into all the things that Bay Street offers, um, you're stuck there. But you're clearly a story where you've been able to maintain your passion for family law, but on a more basic level, uh, a type of litigation involving human uh, interaction and and immediate uh, specific change for individuals. That being said, I imagine that didn't come easy. So how did you, you know, go from maintenance of that into a transition of developing well, your own what practice? what you say is very true, and I appreciate that it is not easy to leave once you get into that mode. There are certainly benefits to it, but it's not exactly easy. There was something missing, um, which you alluded to, which is the human aspect. So saving banks money or making corporations money in the litigation context was not meaningful to me. And, you know, given that I was the type of person who always wanted to go to law school, I thought this can't be it. You know, this can't be, and I couldn't, I don't think I could have articulated it back then, but what I was thinking was, I I just want to have an impact. I want to do something meaningful. So I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to interview with Brody Thorning. Peter Brody was uh, an instructor at my trial advocacy course in University of Toronto. And I remembered him. It, it had been, you know, five or six years earlier. But he had such a, and he was quite a junior lawyer back then. Um, he wasn't as well known as he is today. But he was still a Crown attorney and had amassed already a large amount of trial experience. And so his presence when, you know, he came into the court to, into the course to teach us all and his passion, I think, for litigation really stuck with me. So I heard through a friend of a friend that he and a partner, Peter Thorning, had recently opened up their own law firm and that they were looking for a family lawyer. At the time, they only had one criminal associate, 
But given the nature of the work that they do, there was a lot of overlap. They have, you know, they do a lot of um, police work, of course, and um, some of the, the clients had troubles with their marriage and they needed somebody to handle the overlap. You know, there were a lot of alleged domestic assaults and then, you know, how do you deal with the aftermath and the family law matter? So luckily for me, Peter uh, Brody had a, a magnificent memory and remembered me. And so I got the interview. I remember meeting with them. And I don't remember much about the, the first interview, except that it, it was all pretty fast. You know, um, I said, I have an interest in family law. I don't really know much about it. Like, I was very honest, but I really I really think that's, that's what I want to do. That's kind of what I was thinking. And I explained the story of, of what happened with my articling experience and experience after that. They were, uh, they were in, they wanted to take a risk and a chance on me. And I was lucky that they did. I started practicing. Everyone around me thought I was insane. Um, all of my friends in law thought it was the dumbest thing I've ever done. And probably I was going to crash and burn. Well, I, you know, I have to say that takes a tremendous amount of courage because here you are in a sense, it's almost worse or more scary than going out on your own because, you are on your own uh, running the family practice for lawyers who are depending on you to allow this to succeed. And surely that must have transferred well ultimately then when you go out on your own and start for your own sure. practice. For sure. It was kind of like, a, I guess, a baby step. But when I took that job, I had no, no idea I would ever start my own practice. And um, they were just uh, very wonderfully supportive. And I don't think I would have been able to do it if they hadn't really believed in me. I remember you know, saying to Peter Brody at some point, do you think this is kind of crazy? Because, you know, I actually don't know anything about family law. And and he would just, you know, dismiss it, wave his hand, and he'd say, you're going to be the best family lawyer in the city. And, mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> if you know him at all, you, you don't argue with him, right? Like he just, I think that was his way of saying to me, stop whining and go do it, which right. was very right. different than the experience that I had at McMillan. And I'm not saying either one is good or bad, but the experience that I had at McMillan was, you know, you don't do anything unless you're you're really prepared for it. You have lots and lots of people and lots of support, and you kind of progress in baby steps. And then I went to this entirely different environment where um, their philosophy was, why would we ever ask somebody how to do something? If you have to do it, go do it, right? And don't uh, give it a second thought. So that was kind of refreshing for me and uh, kind of gave me the kick that I needed to just get going. So I began reading everything I possibly could about family law. One thing I had learned as a commercial litigator is that, you know, you have to get up to speed in different areas of the law. So I knew how to do it. You find the relevant legislation, you know, you find the relevant case law for the case that you're working on, and then you, you start. I started with a lot of legal aid work, some private retainers, but simple matters. And um, thank goodness I already had litigation skills so that I could go and, you know, go to court and I could argue things once I, I felt prepared enough. I was pretty exhausted in those days, but I didn't have children, but also very happy because I was doing something mm-hmm. meaningful. I really suddenly felt like I had found my niche and I connected for the first time with, you know, something in law that that made sense to me. So a wonderful thing happened. That was back in 2005. And then in 2006, Osgood's part-time LLM program started their first family 
program, which hadn't happened. So I was part of the first group. So it was perfect timing because that program was really aimed at uh, not just the theory of family law, but they had a number of uh, big name practitioners that would come in and talk to us about every different area of family law, which was perfect for me. I was spending, you know, days and nights studying, going to as many conferences as I could, but I, it kind of helped get me to the next level in terms of my knowledge. So I kept working away and sort of progressing. And before long, I, I had stopped taking legal aid certificates and I, um, I managed to progress in terms of the types of files that I was taking. And then by 2008, I really liked the firm that I was in and it was an exciting time to be there because they were growing and expanding and they had a lot of young lawyers who were in, in the same boat as me from different practice areas who were just getting their own practice up and running. So it was really great support network there. But what I came to understand is that being a no-name fan, family lawyer under what was now becoming a very strong criminal defense brand was going to be difficult for me to market. And it would be one thing if I had had an established practice and gone there, but I did not have that. And so I was concerned about that. And I was concerned that I may never be able to, you know, really expand my practice as a family lawyer. So I decided to branch out on my own. That wasn't, uh, I can't take all the credit for it. My husband, who has a background in business and marketing, really gave me the nudge and said, you can do this. And I thought he was crazy at the time because nobody in my family has ever started a business. That's not something that was ever in my contemplation. I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. I see myself as a lawyer. That's all the only way I've ever looked at myself. But I thought, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe I can do it. I knew there were a lot of, I knew a lot of sole practitioners in the criminal defense bar. By that point, I had made a lot of contacts and I knew they do it. And I also knew that in my files, I came across a lot of sole practitioners, like family law practitioners. So I thought, well, um, if maybe it's not that impossible, maybe I can do it. And uh, so I launched. My husband created. He turns out he's turned out to be quite a brilliant website design person. He designed the first website, and these are skills that he didn't have, but he somehow did it and has gotten better and better at it over time. And it was stressful in the beginning because I had no idea what I was doing. This is one of the main reasons I asked you to be on uh, our podcast is because I think you're someone who has a tremendous uh, insight. And I see uh, in part where that's um, uh, where that's formed um, with with business and marketing and, and establishing yourself as a family lawyer. But just to back up a little bit before we get into that, because that requires a certain foundation and understanding of family law. And obviously that's based um, on your experience and, and through your progression into your LLM. Can you tell us just in a very basic sense, what is family law? For someone, you know, who's a law student listening to this, who's thinking, I want to get interested, uh, or I am interested in family law. So what do you do? I can't sum it up in a sentence, but I'm going to try to sum it up as briefly as I can. So number one, family law involves disputes arising out of a relationship breakdown. And the relationship could be marriage, or it could be a common law breakdown. So the issues that might come up that we have to deal with are property division, child and spousal support, parenting issues like custody and access, those types of things. So when people separate, we have to figure out how to order their affairs, essentially. 
Uh, it also includes marriage contracts or cohabitation agreements at the start of a relationship. Sometimes people want to make plans for the future in the event that they do separate. So that's a part of family law. There's also the issue of child protection. So, you know, matters involving the CAS, that's also um, an area that, that falls within the family law realm. I'm probably missing um, things because it is such a very large area and it encompasses a lot of things, but I think that mainly covers most of what we do. Because it's so broad, clearly, um, do you find that what has developed now is are people, practitioners who have specialized even within those subcategories, for example, just child protection or just, you know, preemptive contracts or Absolutely. things like that? Yes. You have uh, some people who do only child protection. You have many firms that won't do child protection at all um, because they feel like it's a really specialized area. Your firm is a full service. Yes, yes, and uh, we like to do everything. So I don't think there's any area of family law that we we actually don't do. Do you find there's a tendency in your own clients? For example, do you primarily represent women or men, or do you primarily represent people who need a more advanced perspective? It's always surprised me that I have roughly equal men and women. There may be times when I have a few, you know, I think, wow, I have a lot of women right now, but then it swings back and I have a lot of men. And that's probably representative of the population. I, I just, we tend to draw on an equal number. So, and in terms of, you know, who they are and types of people, they range. I mean, they, they could be in their 20s, especially in the marriage context, or they range up to, you know, their mid-70s, people that are separating. I think me personally, the general age range is, you know, early to mid-40s through to 60s is who, is who I usually represent. One thing that struck me on your website um, resonated with me is that it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me you have to develop a good relationship with your clients from the outset in that you'll sort of sit down and determine whether or not the fit's going to work from the beginning. And I say that because this is something that uh, our firm too employs. It's a screening, you know, for us anyway, it's a screening. And I think this is something that a lot of lawyers struggle with to say no to certain clients. Uh, so A, do I have that correct? And and B, how do you say no and why and what benefits Yeah, I think you're right. You? There, uh, there are a lot of similarities, I think, in, in what you and I do in the sense that uh, we deal with, with people directly. And um, I've often thought there's a lot of overlap in, in family and criminal matters that way. When we meet with people in the beginning, we have to get a sense that we can work together because they're going to have to share their deepest, darkest secrets. They're going to have to open up their life and tell us everything, not just financial, but what went on in the marriage and, you know, anything and everything that may be relevant to what we have to do. And if you can't establish that baseline of communication, number one, and trust, then the relationship is not going to work. So the only reason we wouldn't want to represent somebody is if we felt that we wouldn't, we couldn't adequately represent them because, you know, there were these barriers, they, they didn't have the right amount of trust in us, or um, we weren't sure that we were going to be able to communicate adequately to represent them properly. And I, I would think that, you know, family law, much like criminal, is is kind of this process where people come into it perspective inherently that um, everyone in the system is a little bit suspicious, right? That they, or that they approach it with a certain degree of suspicion. Moving to um, sort of back to family law, I should say, is there 
a contemporary issue in family law that you feel is really pressing right now that you see day to day that something maybe has occurred in the past? Well, there are lots of issues. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I like family law so much is because things are always changing. And as society's changing, family law has to kind of evolve. One thing that's that's occurred to me is a is a problem as I see it. We do now a lot of our litigation and resolution in the private realm. So we use mediation and arbitration to resolve disputes. And for the listeners who are non-lawyers, mediators are the third party who you meet with who don't have decision-making power over the parties and then arbitrators of course have decision-making power, and they can make binding decisions which have the force of court orders. It has occurred to me that, and lots of people like arbitration because it's private and they keep their matters private, but there's now a growing body of case law in the arbitration private realm that none of us know about because those decisions, unless they're appealed, are never really shared. With more and more of us taking on these matters and going outside of court because there are efficiencies and there are good reasons to do it, people like the privacy that's great. The downside is the precedent, the case law isn't really developing in the same way that it would if all of these decisions had been made public. So you're left to wonder sometimes. I mean, you have there's always cases that are going to trial in, in court and you have those, but that's actually now a subset of a much larger group of cases. I don't know what the answer is because of course the clients go to arbitration so that they can have privacy. But it would be nice to at least have some basic facts about those cases to to apply to future cases. And you are both uh, an accredited family law mediator uh, and a family law arbitrator. So what exactly does this mean, these accreditations, and how do they so benefit your clients? So in my practice, I act as a lawyer you know, at mediations and arbitrations. I represent clients. And then I can also act as a mediator and an arbitrator. And it just gives family law clients different options for how they want to resolve their disputes. If they want to resolve uh, more efficiently, more cost-effectively outside of court, mediation arbitration gives them those options. I'm an accredited mediator and arbitrator because I feel like that is the way of the future. It's one of the ways to deal with the crisis that we're having right now of an overburdened system. So it just gives me more flexibility to be able to do things in a more efficient way if people need it. What are some of the specific challenges that a family lawyer faces when trying to achieve the goals of a client who may not align well with what the law affords or what your ethical responsibilities may permit? And I I say this because you just mentioned um, arbitration. One thing that just sprung to my mind is clearly arbitration may be in everyone's best interest. Your client may strongly desire this and you have someone on the other side or even your client who says, I'm just not doing arbitration and I want to torch the earth. This, I imagine, is a real struggle with client relations for you and opposing counsel. Have you learned any tricks to try and deal it with that really or skills? It is really a challenge um, dealing with uh, the difficult cases where you're facing a, a client on the other side who who is not dealing in the realm of reasonable. Those are usually the cases that are litigated, and litigation is a very useful tool. If we can't agree to arbitration, sometimes with those cases, there are very tough decisions to make. Because the person that you represent may not, for whatever reason, be able to withstand a trial. It could be financial reasons. It's often more personal reasons. Like, you know, if a woman has been in a relationship, a long-term relationship with a controlling spouse for a long time, and she doesn't feel 
like she's able to really challenge the spouse, then, you know, how would you expect her to do it now? And there's no amount of talking to her and saying, let me be your voice and we'll get through this and, and I'm going to coach you through it is going to help her suddenly do a 180 and be able to stand up to him especially when we're talking about a long drawn out process. I sometimes have people say to me, I just can't do it. Like I just can't. And so the focus at that point shifts to, okay, how can we get this person out of this situation? How do we get them the best deal possible? And the answer might be that we have to litigate a little. Maybe we need to bring a motion for disclosure. Maybe we need to bring a motion for temporary support and to try to get some movement in the in the action before we finally settle but it's a it's a different sort of focus and you have to just remember in family law matters that as much as you the lawyer might want to drive the result a certain way and it's very frustrating because you know you see that your client's got rights and she's being walked all over and those are the cases you really love to litigate it's just not up to you and you have to be respectful of that it's a personal choice in terms of how people want to resolve their dispute Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of the same struggles in criminal law in, in that, you know, we look at it and think this deal should not be taken. And yet, you know, it's not our choice. Um, but I'm glad you say that because I think uh, sometimes, especially younger lawyers need the courage to know that they can take instructions without feeling like they're not doing their job as a lawyer. How would you describe the evolution of a family lawyer's practice? For example, in criminal law, we evolve by starting with small level offenses, assaults, impaired, and then taking on more serious cases with fewer legal aid typically or you know, a mixed practice, uh, and then doing more and more serious cases like homicides and, and so on. So does the same thing happen in family law in the sense that you have to develop an expertise on complex division of property, tax yeah, it issues, things like, things like that? Yeah, sounds like things progress for us, well, for many of us, the same way that they do for criminal lawyers. That's the way I started. I started with fairly simple matters, straightforward custody and access disputes simple child support cases, simple property division cases. Like for example, common situation is where the two people have a matrimonial home and a pension and they both have, they're both salaried employees. So there's no fight really about what is the property division here. This is just math or even the the support determinations. It's pretty straightforward. Start sort of with those kind of cases and then you build. Um, maybe as, as you get broader in your experience, one of those spouses will own a business and that creates, you know, further problems because now the business is probably going to have to be valued. You need to incorporate the use of a financial expert into, into the matter. You may need to have an income determination done. Suddenly that's another issue that pops up in addition to having to work out, you know, child support and spousal support. So the complexity from the financial perspective, tends to grow as the the assets become more complex. And then on custody access disputes, sometimes you have to incorporate third-party professionals in those as well. Sometimes we incorporate senior social workers or psychologists to help us do what's called a Section 30 custody and access assessment because it's not clear what should happen. And there are complicated issues. There could be, you know, substance abuse problems. There could be problems with the parties are able to communicate because of historical abuse, for example, or, you know, there are allegations of alienation by one parent. And sometimes these things need to be further investigated. And then, you know, if the parties can't agree after the custody and access assessment is done, then you have to litigate. The custody and access assessments really 
they, they often help us resolve because you have a third party, an objective third party who says, these are my recommendations. I've met with the parents. I've met with the, with the children. I've met with all the collaterals. And um, here, here, here are my recommendations to the court. Knowing that, um, the parties can often find a way to resolve. It's encouraging to hear, too, that you're not dissuaded at all from reaching out to other professionals. I think a, a mistake a lot of lawyers make is thinking they're the experts of everything and they can handle it all. And and sometimes that's financial constraints. Fortunately, I'm sure your clients have the means to obtain those sorts of ex- that sort of expertise. But it, it's this sort of segues into another aspect, my next question, rather, and that is, how do you deal with unrepresented parties? Because... As I understand it, looking from the outside and reading the news, this is a big concern it, of family law It really law is right a big now. concern, and it's because these people don't have access to help or they don't feel like they have access to appropriate legal help. It's it's quite difficult because if you're working opposite a self-represented litigant, it, it will most likely drive up costs for your client. The court expects you to you know, give at least some basic help. You don't need to represent the other side, but you you have to be civil and give some basic help in terms of how things, the file's moving along. And I try to do that because I, I do think it's the right thing to do, but I think it's also helpful for my client if we can just keep things moving. It's frustrating, I know, for judges and for those of us who are trying to get matters dealt with while we're waiting for self-represented litigants to to have their matters addressed. It's frustrating for the self-represented litigants because the process is complex and cumbersome and it's just not easy for them to navigate. So it really is a big problem. We have now rolling out in the next couple of years, unified family courts. So one thing that's complicated for uh, self-represented litigants, and I think all of us, is that there's different legislation dealing with different issues and different levels of court. So if you have just basic custody access and child support, for example, you would deal with that in the Ontario Court of Justice. And then if you have property issues, you would go to the Superior Court. So if one party brings custody and access claim and the OCJ, and then another party responds with a claim for property, now you've got the issue of having to move it to you know, the Superior Court. This is all very complicated for people, but the unified family courts are great news because you can have one judge dealing with all of this. Also, they have family law information sessions and information centers, which give people an opportunity to find out, you know, what forms do I use? As simple as that, the forms are so damn complicated. You know, that sort of thing helps them at least get on the right track They can also get information about ADR processes. So they start to learn what is mediation. We now have mediation centers everywhere in most courthouses so that you can have access to mediation either for free or for a very low amount based on your income. If people know what mediation is, they're often open to it. Not every matter is suited for mediation, but it can really help a lot of people. But people who come to the process and just don't know about these things won't utilize them. They just, it's a matter of getting information. Right. And that's really helpful for, um, I'm sure a lot of underrepresented cues and obviously there's a lot that can be done there. 
But uh, I don't know if you've had this experience, but in criminal court, uh, sometimes people choose to be unrepresented or they'll burn through three or four lawyers that maybe even legal aid has provided with them. And because, you know, their lawyers may not advance a theory of massive conspiracies of judges and police and everything like that, the legal aid stops funding them. So at least with criminal law, there's a destination when the train leaves the station. There's a trial coming up, whether they like it or not. I imagine the same thing isn't in family law because kids are kids until they're 18. So how do you manage that? I see, To me, it seems insurmountable, and I, I can't even begin to think yeah, how difficult that Yeah, we make reference be. to this on our website to try to help people understand up front that it's not always the complexity of a matter that drives the cost and the time it takes to deal with it. It's really the conflict. So if we have somebody who you describe on the other side who is hell-bent on a long-term fight for whatever reason. It could be mental health. It could be a personality disorder. It could just be that they're having a hard time letting go of the relationship or, you know, they're in, in a midlife crisis. The litigation will go on. So we can't mediate with somebody like that if they don't want to do mediation arbitration. It ends up being a much lengthier litigation battle than it has to be because we waste a lot of time And then at the end of it, as you point out, we might resolve and let's say come up with a final order relating to custody and access and support. But then, you know, children get older. um, There's an opportunity to say, oh, there's been a material change in circumstances and I have to come back and, and now deal with that. We do have some of those clients who are unfortunately, you know, lifers. They're with us for a long time and not always consistently, but off and on for a long time. And It's really, really sad because the issues in dispute aren't really not that big a deal. It's just, it's the personality that you're dealing with on the other side. And and no matter how reasonable your client may be or how much you do to try to shelter them from this ongoing litigation strategy of the other side, it's, it's very difficult to avoid. They're entitled to their process. Well, and people, I think, at times rely on that very heavily that they're entitled to their process. I, I think that phrase really nails uh, nails it down. And I wonder sometimes, at least in the criminal context, that entitlement to process, although essential and fundamental to a proper functioning justice system, when it is being abused clearly, like I said, with criminal courts, there is a destination to this train station. Do you feel that there's some shortcoming there that maybe the family court needs something more to step in to say this. this well, is having specialized family judges really helps because they tend to spot this type of thing and they they can get control of it, especially if it's done early on, you know, such as assigning a case management judge. So you don't have this person being able to bring a million different motions on different issues to different judges, right? Because it takes each judge a, a long time to get caught up in the many boxes of the file to know what has happened to date. So if you have a single judge case managing, you've got a really good shot of, of having them contain the process and make it a lot more streamlined. I think there's more that could be done to streamline the family law rules to make them not so cumbersome. Simple issues, for example, that we could arbitrate in a, a day or two might end up taking us two weeks in a trial in the in the public realm. So, And that's because there's only so much judges can do to shorten the process. And if somebody is entitled to their process, you've, you've got to go through it. They can call their witnesses. They can you know, insist on full examination in chief and cross-examination of all those witnesses. And, you know, it's often needless. If you had experienced counsel on the file, then they could just agree, you know, let's select a, an experienced arbitrator. Let's 
just submit our evidence in chief by way of affidavit. Let's do very brief cross-examination or maybe not even any at all and give our legal argument and we're done in a day, right? It's a big, big difference. It is a real problem. Right. And you can even see this frustration mount in courts. The very famous decision recently, I think it was Justice Quinn, wrote sort of about these problems in a very illustrative way about, you know, some of these things. So is it legislative change that could come or is it something I think it's a complicated problem and there are, there's going to have to be a complex, there's going to have to be a complex, complex solution. So one thing that some of us are doing is offering now consulting or coaching retainers so that people can have access to legal help maybe on a consulting basis, as opposed to a full retainer. If they, you know, and some people can afford it, but they don't want to spend the money on a full blown retainer. So there are things like that we can do probably in combination with other legislative change, like the, you know, changing of the family law rules to make it more flexible. Probably a combination of those things could work. So I want to return, uh, like I promised to, because this is really interesting to me and I'm sure many of our listeners, and that is your success in practice. So um, in 2008, you started your own firm and you discussed a little bit about why you decided to go out on your own um, and some of the assistance and and encouragement you had. And and that's certainly a trend that we've seen with all of our lawyers is is that encouragement, wherever it may come from. I mean, it's it's so interesting to see that everyone around you has so much confidence and it's often the lawyer themselves who are sort of thinking, can I do this? But notwithstanding that, you're over the years, clearly someone who's has a, a an understanding of the necessity, not just in a mastery of family law, but also in a certain business acumen in the practice. Uh, it's apparent to me through your website, your specialization, the size of your firm, um, your overall success, that r- running a successful practice means more than just being a master in family law. So a very long sort of setup. My first question is, is this assessment correct in the sense that do you feel that your perhaps natural ability to be a strong business person has helped you in law well, and develop I don't know that I actually have any natural ability in business and I don't even know what that means. I know I know have I, I have no formal training in developing and running a business and business and marketing, but I think that if you are going to have a law firm, you have to get comfortable with the idea that these are things you need to learn more about. So one thing that I do is recognize the limits. My main job is I'm a lawyer and that's what I'm good at and that's what I've been trained to do. So I have assistance, you know, I have assistance from, I've got outside help and I have people who they do know a lot more than me about business, about marketing. And I draw on that because you can't do everything. You really can't. I mean, I'm in awe if there is a lawyer who is able to have a full-time practice and also on a full-time basis, do all of the business running and development and marketing for their firm. I couldn't possibly do it all, number one, because there just aren't enough hours in the day. It's too much for one person. And number two, I'd be doing something badly in one of those areas. I I don't do a lot of um, business stuff during regular working hours. I'm mainly focused on my job and it it takes all of my energy to focus on the law portion. 
it's generally in the after hours that I'm, you know, I'm getting up to speed on what's happening more in the management or running of the firm. And if there are issues or changes or policies or things that we need to do, those are conversations that I'm having, yeah, more after hours. So I hesitate to project myself as an ultra successful business person. I feel like it might be a fair assessment to say that I'm perhaps good at understanding my limits and knowing knowing when to get help where I need it. I'm glad you mentioned that, Julie, because it, it touches upon something that I think is very important for lawyers to understand. And it was um, uh, mentioned by Norman um, Bockel, who was uh, the managing partner of uh, Heenan Blakey before uh, ultimately its demise. And one of the things that he said in an interview, I think it was with Steve Pakin, that lawyers have an unwillingness to delegate and accept that they're not the experts on everything and, and really at their own peril because they're not accountants, they're not marketing specialists, they're not these sorts of things. And it's encouraging uh, to hear that, you know, your success um, clearly is in part by having that willingness to delegate. So another question I have for you is what is it like to work for you? What's the well, culture? The culture of is really an open one. We, uh, most lawyers always have their doors open so that if there's anyone who has questions or wants to talk through a case or a problem, you know, we, we're quite good at that. There's constant communication going on in, in the office. We really encourage lawyers to try to keep developing and keep developing really for themselves as opposed to for the firm just so that they keep moving along with their own brand and getting on to bigger and better cases. I feel like that's good for them, no matter what they do as they move on in their practice. So there is some encouragement to try to take on new things, maybe because of my own background. I feel that there's only so much preparing you can do. And if a young lawyer has watched something a number of times and they're at the point where they don't feel like they're ready, but they kind of, you know, they're ready to go and do something. We, we sometimes have to give some gentle nudging to do that. And I, not everybody needs it. Some lawyers are just chomping at the bit to get into court and to do their own argument and things like that. And then some lawyers just need a little bit of encouragement. So I would say our firm is, is a combination of, we do offer a lot of mentorship for certain, and we never want anybody to feel like they need to go and do something that they're totally unprepared for. But we do also encourage people to take some initiative and to move forward because otherwise you just still stay really stagnant in your practice. And it's just not the culture that we have. I feel like everybody needs to be moving forward. So what do you look for now having your insight and looking back and what success is in family law and what it takes and even sort of the, the subcomponents of that in the different areas, because I'm sure strengths in mediation is very different from strengths in, you know, the diligence on the financial side of things. Is there something in particular you look for in an associate, or is every hire a new fit to depending on the practice? Well, certainly needs to the times? Uh, to an extent, each new hire depends on where we're at and what we need. Um, I would say the basic requirement is skill level for what we need at the time based on, you know, the level of the lawyer coming in. That's definitely a requirement. There is a requirement that it's somebody that we all are going to be able to work with, you know, basic skills aside, because we often work in teams on our files. So are they going to be able to fit in and get along with everybody? Are they somebody who has good people skills? Because family law is all about people skills both in dealing with clients and with dealing with other lawyers. And so we have to feel like there's somebody that that has those basic uh, skills. 
other than that, I think it's also just a gut sort of feel when people come in and you meet with them and you try to imagine how are they going to fit within the team that we have. And uh, fit is very important, I guess, just like clients. Do they sort of embrace our firm culture, which includes being young and flexible? Um, we're relatively young and we're young enough that we're able to change policies if we think something's not working. We're young enough to to decide that we can take on something new, like, for example, consulting retainer agreements and would do it quickly. We don't we don't really have a long decision making process or, you know, different generations of people to to run things by and there's not a lot of argument. We just move to get things done. We try to stay ahead of the curve in terms of adopting technology so people have to be comfortable with that. You know, those are the sort of things that we're looking for. Especially in 2018, everything is moving so quickly. And what you see with lawyers, unfortunately, is, and it's not so much um, younger lawyers, frankly, it's it's often older lawyers who are unwilling to change. And it's, it's but in 2018, I think you, to survive, even you have to be willing to adapt because even look where we were, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't even have iPhones. It's hard to remember, right I know. <laughs> no, it's, it really is, yeah. Another question I ask uh, a lot of our guests in the litigation side of thing, and I think you're probably one of the best people to ask about this, is what I call dealing with the haters. And, and what I mean by that is what a lot of new lawyers, uh, I think, don't realize, particularly as they get into litigation, is that parties to another side of the action can possess like a real visceral hatred towards the lawyer. And I think this is really surprising to a lot of younger lawyers, and I imagine especially in family law, name-calling insults, I'm sure even threats at times. And uh, this is even amplified further now with Twitter and social media, Google reviews, things like that. So to the young lawyer who all of a sudden has one of these experiences, what would you say to them You know, to sort of check them, even within your own firm, how do you manage those? Because it's troubling. It's emotionally um, startling it and, and very, unsettling. It um, is unsettling for sure. And it's a constant problem that we face, especially in family law. People are, look at, they're upset, right? They're, they're not happy. And I mean, it's almost like the better job you do for your client, the more unhappy the other person is. And, you know, you're somehow to be blamed because they didn't get the result that they wanted. Um, I try to not inflame them. I feel like what they want more than anything is a dialogue with you and they want a fight. And I try to remind myself that the fight is really between the two parties. It's not between me and the other client. So I try very hard not to inflame the situation and not to engage in the dialogue with them. Well, first of all, if they have a lawyer, they shouldn't be contacting me. I mean, that doesn't stop some people from doing it. So I will direct them back to their lawyer and, and I hope the lawyer will have a conversation with their client about it. If they're attacking you online, you know, again, you, you have to just assume that people recognize that when they read these things online. I mean, they, these people sound disgruntled. They sound, you know, like they really hate you. They don't understand that the work you're doing is really not personal. You're just doing your job and trying to represent your client. I try to remind others in the firm when they get upset about these things, and I try to remind myself that often these people have mental health issues or they might be perfectly normal and reasonable in their everyday lives, but they've reached their breaking point because they feel like they're getting to financial ruin or they're going to lose their children or, I mean, maybe things aren't 
practically speaking, as bad as what they think, but that doesn't matter. Their perception is that they're losing everything that they care about. And so they're unraveling. If you try to have a little bit of empathy from that perspective, I feel like it helps to not take it personal. Then you say to yourself, this actually isn't about me. This has nothing to do with me. I just happen to be the face of the fight. I'm the one, you know, in the fr- standing in front of the other spouse and saying, no, you can't have what you want. So it's for sure a difficult issue that we all face. What about media? You're someone who is often before the news, television, you'll be doing interviews in law times. You've been interviewed with ET Canada, CTV, L, Yahoo, CBC, Global News, you name it. These are the types of any interviews, particularly on live television, where you have to be very careful in what you say. Is there something that you've learned from those experiences that you could pass on to lawyers who aren't as familiar? Because you have to be careful what you say. And one thing I've learned is to not sound too lawyerly. My father has worked in media his his whole career, and he gave me some advice early on after watching me struggle with trying to say something. I try to give a legal principle. And then, of course, with lawyers, we always say, but there's this caveat. And then, you know, you don't want people to rely on your advice, right? So you, you say, <laughs> right, and then there's right. this, and then there's this. And you can imagine what a disaster for the poor journalist who's trying to extract something from you so that they can give it to the public in a very simple format. What I try to remember is that the questions you are being asked, they're not really for deep legal insights because that's not what the general public wants. What they want is a simple comment and don't make it complicated. So to the best of your ability, if you can make it simple and and say something more general in everyday language, I feel like the journalists get what they want and ultimately deliver the message. What does a great day look like for you in the court or even outside of the court, if you want to talk about that? Like, what, what is a day that you think, you know, I felt like I did my role? It's in always a really great day today? when one of our matters resolves, because sometimes people are with us for many years as a client. Sometimes, especially those, those clients really struggle and you're with them, you know, sometimes day in, day out for year after year and the litigation goes on and When they resolve, they're so happy. They're really grateful that that chapter of their life is over and it's it's just nice for them after a long, hard fight, whatever way it's resolved, either by court order or arbitral award or just by mediation. It's always really a great day to see that they're able to get on with their lives and to stop having to worry about paying massive legal fees and you know, the stress and the headache of their next appearance and the ongoing battle with their former spouse, particularly if these people have to go on and co-parent together for a number of years. So those, I would say, are are my favorite days when I see there's some relief in sight for these clients because they suffer sometimes far too long. What about the bad days? Now, obviously, we all have really bad days as litigators. And I guess the, the real question I'm asking is, how do you move on from those days? You know, in, in criminal law, it's a kind of thing where you feel someone went to jail for something they didn't do. What's the equivalent in family law and how do you compartmentalize that to Well, move the on really to the tough battle? thing is when a judge or an arbitrator doesn't share your view and you don't feel your client got what he or she was ent- fairly entitled to. And a lot of these cases are fact-driven. You know, that happens. Litigation is, is often a gamble because every case is different and you don't know exactly what it's how it's going to turn out to be. I beat myself up quite a bit and, of course, analyze and overanalyze and figure out what could possibly we have done different. And 
Sometimes the answer is not a whole lot. Sometimes the answer is, you know, this was an uncertain claim to begin with and we had to give it a shot because that's what the client wanted to do. But I spend certainly a lot of sleepless nights. I beat myself up and probably after about a week, I tell myself, I've got other matters I've got to get on to. And the best way to start to get over something like that is to go back and focus on your other matters, right? And to tell yourself that you are a lawyer, you have a job, which is to represent your client. You are not God. You can't make things happen sometimes and as much as you would like them to. There's only so much that is within your control. So you're not really very good to anyone if you're not able to let it go. If you're, you should do like a postmortem and, and ask yourself, is there anything that I can learn from this for the next time? But then after that, it's, it's time to move on. Is there anything that, you know, maybe a hobby or something that you've taken on over the years that has helped you sort of deal with the well, stress of one litigation? one thing I have found really helps for my mental health is exercise because I find that it really helps to cut some of the effects of stress. And I used to think of exercise as something that, you know, was something you should do for yourself. But now I see it as kind of a requirement for health reasons. And even more so for mental health than for physical health, because it really helps to alleviate the stress. So I try to exercise and I probably exercise more regularly when I don't have a lot going on. I should do it all the time, but you know, like most of us, I fall off the wagon. I try to, you know, talk about things with colleagues because that helps to always talk things through and to sort of analyze from different people's perspectives, the problem. And then I just try to relax. I mean, spending time with my family is a good break from the day-to-day. You know, my children, I have two little boys, are blissfully unaware of most of what goes on in my life. And they're, you know, they're just doing their regular thing. So if you join in in that, um, you tend to kind of get your head, get yourself out of your head. And you, for a few minutes, and then that sort of jolts you back to reality. Oh, right, there's a bigger perspective here. It's not just all about you know, my bad day or my worries over this particular client. I want to talk about advocacy. Is there some sort of mantra that you live by, or as I often say, an inscription on your desk that you read before I heading would say, off to court? Be the calm in the storm. Family law matters are very difficult. And there are some days when I get up and think, today is going to be a very trying day because we have perhaps very high conflict people on both sides. I have a very difficult lawyer on the other side. And I know that it's going to be chaos. And you have to be quite comfortable with heading into a high level of emotion and chaos, because often things get quite heated, whether we're in litigation or we're in mediation. And I try to remind myself, okay, if you get too personally invested in this, and you start to get upset, no one is steering the ship, we are all going to a very bad place very quickly. We're, we're not going to get anything resolved. I also remind myself that if I'm getting upset, I'm losing, really. I'm not paying attention to what I should be paying attention to. So I need to stop. I need to reevaluate, maybe go back, take a different strategy, take a deep breath. If I'm incredibly frustrated, you know, sometimes even just take a walk, go to the bathroom, do something to get your head out of it. So I don't know if it's necessary in all areas of litigation, but I feel like for family litigators in particular, we we really struggle to to try to maintain calm. And the really good litigators do it. They are able to, even if they they have a very, you know, spirited 
debate, let's say, and a very principled fight. When you leave the courtroom, most of us, none of that matters. We're very pleasant with each other and we're not personally invested. So I find for me, I try to make that my focus. What about the flip side of that? Is there something that you've always heard that has rubbed you the wrong way as a point of advice of advocacy, something that you think has always just been cliche but wrong advice that you try and hammer out? Well, I just don't know that it's true that any litigator can just walk into court and wing it. I just don't know that that actually happens. It's never true because even if it's a very senior person who says, I did no preparation today and I went and argued this successfully, well, it's not without preparation because they've had years and years of preparation. That particular issue they may have argued many times before. So I would say, you know, you need to over-prepare every time. I don't think it makes any sense to tell somebody, you know, if you can't just go and wing it with limited preparation, then you're not really a good litigator or you're not going to do well in, in this type of law. One thing that happens in litigation, particularly when you get to an advanced stage as you have, where your approach is operating on several levels of sophistication that if you're doing your job well, no one understands other than you. And that's part of, I guess, the goal of persuasion is it's when it's too late. So if you're operating that way, as I'm sure you do, how do you convey that to your client when it's such a sophisticated analysis to ensure that they still have the trust in you, even though it may look like you're You've got to try to communicate up. as much as possible with clients in advance, I think, of the argument or in advance of what you're doing. Sometimes things are moving so fast, there's no time. Like sometimes you're in the middle of an argument and they tap you on the shoulder and they say, what are you doing? <laughs> and you can't really <laughs> stop. You just say, we're going to talk at the break and I'm going to I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. And then, you know, at the break, I say, well, remember this and listen, this is this is what we're doing and here's what we're working towards. And, and then they say, oh, right, yeah. If, I mean, the more you can prepare them in advance for the strategy, the better. And it's a good challenge to to challenge yourself to articulate it to your client. Like if you can't articulate your litigation strategy to the client or to somebody else, what chance do you have of actually carrying it out? So I try to be as transparent about process with the client as I can possibly be because they need to be on board every step of the way. They really need to buy into what's happening and to approve and say, yes, I'm, I'm in agreement with the strategy. Right. I think it's really refreshing to hear because, you know, I think there's a, this approach of a lot of lawyers uh, I see in criminal law, this idea of, you know, get to the back of the bus, I'll tell you when we're there, as opposed to putting them in the passenger seat to actually explain. And I think that causes a lot of problems and breakdowns in communications and confidence in the lawyer as well. In wrapping up, I, I ask everyone this question. If you could change either a Supreme Court of Canada ruling, tweak it a little bit, or some major legislative change in family law, what do you think would have the greatest impact in in benefiting? Well, I don't know about justice as a whole, but there is one provision in the Family Law Act, which is always causing us grief. So in part one of the Family Law Act, it deals with property division of married people at the end of a marriage. And the rules say that anything you bring into marriage you can deduct for the purposes of property that is to be divided. To give you an example, if you bring into a marriage a million dollars and it's in a bank account and you can prove that, you get to deduct from the ultimate calculation that you're, the property that you're going to share with your spouse, a million dollars. You may have to share the increase in value, but you can deduct the million dollars. If, however, that million dollars is in the form of a home, which becomes the matrimonial home, you lose that deduction. 
So it all depends on where the money is. And a lot of people are just unaware of this provision. And so I don't really see any good reason for it. I mean, if you had a million dollars, whether it's in a bank account or whether it's in your home, it, it should really be the same rule that applies. This is a lot of the reason why we do marriage contracts. So not only is it frustrating the separation side, but we often have to draft marriage contracts to contract around this problem. So if that was fixed, that would solve a lot of a lot of our issues. But how do you, you know, this is the question I'm sure you, well, an issue you struggle with all the time is approaching a potential spouse. It's not the most romantic thing to say, I need you to sign this. Yeah, uh, it's bad. How, how does that happen? It's funny. I've had actually a number of clients say, could, could you do it? Could you? <laughs> could you speak to could you speak to my spouse and tell her or him what, you know, what, what we're thinking here? And I always say, no. Um, I mean, like we could have a, a meeting with maybe the two lawyers and the two clients and I'm happy to, to put out their, what we're asking for and the reasons why. Luckily at the marriage contractor or cohab stage, everybody's in love, right? So it, it's way easier to have a conversation, a productive, cooperative conversation than it is at the separation stage. So people will, you know, sometimes broach the subject a little bit, but then they'll leave a lot of the further details to be negotiated by the lawyers just because they don't feel comfortable and they don't want to get into a large fight at home. Well, I can't thank you enough, Julie, for participating in the podcast. Uh, I think uh, your insights are so valuable. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. It. And thanks for inviting me. I, I really enjoy listening to all of your, your guests so far, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Before we end our podcast today, we're going to try something new at the end of each podcast, and that is answering some of our questions from listeners and fans of the podcast. Before we do, I just want to say once again, thank you to LexisNexis Canada for sponsoring our podcast. As an exclusive sponsor, they've allowed us to take this podcast to a whole new level, traveling outside of Toronto and interviewing some wonderful guests that are coming up. Remember to visit their exclusive deal for Of Council listeners on this episode with Julie. Get three additional months for free when signing up for Lexus Practice Advisor Canada for one year. To schedule a tour of the family module and to ask about getting three additional months for free, visit LexisNexis.ca backslash family module tour, one word, or just visit our website, click on Julie's episode, and you'll see the link right there. So with that, let's get into some of these questions that our listeners have asked. This question is from Hannah in Toronto. She's a student. Uh, questions for anyone, so I'll take it. Um, her question is, I love criminal law, but I'm unsure if I would be suited to the practice. Is there a certain personality required of successful defense lawyers? What would you suggest for a second year trying to determine whether the practice of criminal law is for her. Well, I think there's two issues at play here. One is it's going to be obvious to you if you love criminal law. The thing about criminal law is when you read it, it's kind of interesting to everyone. That's why TV shows are made about it. It's exciting and there's a lot of emotional elements to it. But I think if you're really asking yourself um, if this is for you, you have to ask is this something that I would read in my spare time? You know, there's a story about Eddie Greenspan taking away his criminal code uh, on his honeymoon and reading it all. And I'm not necessarily saying you have to have that level of commitment, but it's the kind of thing that 
you know, if you're really going to be good at this and be committed, you have to be willing to read an evidence textbook on your own time because you just want to be better at what you do. You have to be willing to read the weekly net letters that come out from Alan Gold and and make sure that you understand what the developments are in the law because without that sort of commitment, and I that probably applies to all areas of law, you're not going to be exceptional. The, the challenge with criminal law is it's very draining, and so if you find this type of content hard to you know deal with and then that's something that you might want to reevaluate before you get into it because uh, as we've heard from some of our other guests like Daniel Robitaille um, in particular where you talk about the drain of, of how much criminal law can be unless you really love the content and are willing to help people and, and have a passion to do so uh, I think it's just going to be overwhelming. The second aspect I would say to criminal law and whether or not you want to get into this is whether or not um, you have the fortitude to um, not make that much uh, money as some of your peers because you're going to look to Bay Street and you're going to see a lot of people doing very well for themselves, driving the cars that you'd like to drive and purchasing the homes you'd like to purchase. Um, criminal law, uh, you know, there are always exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, it doesn't offer that same level of security. There are some certainly some good jobs out there. And if you like criminal law in general, then working for the Crown Crown's office is a good way to do that and strike that balance. But as far as going out on your own and becoming a criminal defense lawyer, um, you know, fair warning that it is a very difficult business venture to get into. Um, So something to keep in mind that, you know, you can't go into it for the money. That's for sure. Okay. Next question is from Samir uh, Nakib from Windsor, Ontario, another law student. What inspired you to start the podcast? Obviously, this question is for me. I like the legal conversations when lawyers are putting out their thoughts on cases and what they think they could have done differently. And thanks for asking lawyers about their articling experience advice. I always learn something new. Well, thanks for that, Samer. Um, I'm glad to hear that. So what inspired me to start the podcast? Um, I actually get asked that question quite a bit a lot by our guests who sit down and sort of say, why am I, why am I doing this right now? Why are you doing this? And uh, the answer I would give to that is uh, it's nothing overly complicated. I just started listening to podcasts and, and in long commutes in Toronto, it was something that uh, I got more and more involved in. And there's a lot of great podcasts out there. And one, uh, there's sort of a blending of different concepts, but one podcast and writer, uh, Tim Ferriss, um, talks uh, a lot to different titans of the industry so it might be for example the ceo of starbucks one day and then olympic swimmer the next day and takes sort of the key elements and asks the similar questions to all these um, titans of the industry and i thought you know there certainly uh, would be an interest for that in lawyers to sort of go to all these remarkable lawyers and say what is it that you do to prepare for trial what is it that you do to come down um, and just kind of ask the same questions over and over again. Obviously, it's not the same for every person, but but generally speaking, um, what what are these same questions and and the similarities and differences have been very interesting. And so I suppose that's what got me into uh, that podcast. And I and selfishly, it, it it is a way that I can meet all these great lawyers and sit down with them and talk to them and give me an excuse to email them when I would never have the ability to do so otherwise, and they probably wouldn't uh, give me the time of the day. So uh, now that I can do that, it's it's opened up a lot of uh, really great uh, personal um, relationships that I'm, I'm very fortunate of and having such great guests. So thanks for that question, Samer. Um, see if we've got some more questions here. Uh, Lissandro from Mississauga, uh, 
law student. Uh, as a lawyer, I want to be able to reduce the incarceration rates of indigenous peoples. Since Gladue courts have become introduced, indigenous incarceration rates have increased. Based upon your experience and knowledge, what do you believe is the biggest issue of why Gladue principles and Gladue courts are not being effective at reducing incarceration rates? What needs to be done short-term and long-term to be able to address these issues um, and, and see changes? So, Lysandra, I think that's a, an excellent question, although I have to be honest, I don't feel I'm probably the best lawyer to answer that because, um, uh, you know, I've always held the, the view that I shouldn't be practicing in areas that unless I'm uh, equipped to do so, and I'm not specialized enough to be practicing uh, in Claudeau Court, so we generally just don't take on uh, any type of um, clients who are Indigenous unless it's something very simple that we can help with quickly. But I suppose anecdotally, what I can say, and it, uh, some of the issues transcend into other marginalized groups, and that is, you know, the courts need to, if they want to deal with um, recidivism in, 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 uh, and apply these types of um, more uh, novel, but also, I think, more effective principles of sentencing, then they have to make a commitment to do so without trying to do both at the same time. I mean, you, when you look to alternative courts like drug treatment court or um, reconciliation um, uh, circles and, and other types of, of ways of dealing with, with crime and recidivism, you can't at the same time say, if you don't do this, then you're going to go to jail or try and blend the two because it just doesn't work. If we're going to be serious about these principles, then we have to fully commit to them one way or the other. So as much as I can comment on it, I think that would be my answer. But, you know, maybe maybe that's a, certainly a question we should ask a, another lawyer in the future who practices more in this particular area of law. But thanks for the question. Another question from Liam in Ottawa. Um, what effect has a Jordan decision had on your practice? Boy, I, you know, Liam, that's a great question, but I think we could do a whole podcast on this. Um, fundamentally, what I'd say is, when you go into criminal court, everything now is about Jordan. And this isn't a good thing because I feel that we have lost um, perspective here on what we're actually trying to achieve. And that is justice for people, accessibility, making sure that the justice system treats them fairly. And it seems that the courts have become far too concerned about very specific and hard deadlines because the Supreme Court has really taken out the discretion to realize that the criminal court system is dynamic, it's nuanced, it's a human process, it's not about hard deadlines. You know, there's some cases that take 25 months and for whatever specific reason, that's actually a really good timeline because of complicated mental health problems or something like that. And then there's other cases which take six months and it's still too short because it's a, a youth charged with a very simple offense who just wants to get to trial and back to school as quick as possible. So because of that, hard deadline, I use those as examples, but because of that hard deadline, uh, I think it's really um, put the courts, uh, miscalibrated the courts of where we need to be. And so every day when we go into court, we're asked about Jordan dates as opposed to what we're actually doing. And, and more and more, less deference is given to lawyers to saying, you know, we all agree, the Crown and I, as defense counsel, both agree that this eight-month adjournment is in the best interest of the client for a very specific reason. And although the court generally will acquiesce to such a request, it's not done without some pushback. And uh, yeah, it's just, 
it's affected it in every way. And frankly, I don't see anything good of it. And uh, I think it's really completely destroyed the 11B rights we have uh, in this country. And that is uh, because, you know, yes, we have a right to a fair, uh, a speedy trial, but it it's more about that than anything else. As a, um, a U.S. Uh, judge once said, you know, swift justice requires more than swiftness. And I think that's what's the effect that Jordan has had upon it. And uh, hopefully that's revisited in my lifetime. Last question um, from Rebecca in London, Ontario, another student. Thank you, Rebecca. How accurate and comparable is Kafka's The Trial to the Current State of the Canadian Criminal Justice System? Well, I haven't read The Trial in a little bit, but I am familiar with the book. And yeah, it's it's similar. I mean, obviously there's a lot of metaphors to be, to be played there. Uh, I think what... Uh, I guess concept is most transferable from Kafka, Kafka's The Trial to our, our present system is how out of place the accused feels in it. That an accused walking into a courtroom or even before they get into there has no idea what it actually means before they get into the system. They don't know what the first court appearance is about. They don't know why it was adjourned. They don't know what disclosure is. And part of that reason, not entirely, but part of that reason is because none of this is intuitive. It's not, the criminal justice system is not set up for the people that it's intended to deliver the result to. It's set up for lawyers and judges and crowns, you know, the professionals in the system who know what's going on, who know that, you know, a yellow form needs to be submitted on a Tuesday, but only if it's at the 11 court docket and all these very strange procedures and I think if the courts are going to be serious about taking away that and, and reducing that type of complexity, they need to ask themselves a question. And that is, if they were to walk in to a court not knowing anything, would they be treated right? And there's lots of analogies that we can use, but one simple one would be, you know, you walk into a hospital and you need treatment, then the system itself is diagnosing you and, and, and making sure that you're treated. They're the ones who are triaging you. Whereas the court system, the metaphor there would be you're walking around and hoping you step into the right operating room with the right disease that you're identifying. So frankly, it's impossible unless you have some sort of legal counsel along the way. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, people aren't being executed like dogs in the street, but, um, you know, the the result is in many ways the same uh, in the sense that people are sometimes being sent to jail or given probation orders and they have no idea what actually happened until three years down the road when they realize that they shouldn't have done that and they've now got a lot of negative consequences to deal with. So anyway, I think um, that question period worked really well. We're going to do some more of these in the future. And I want to thank uh, our guest, Julie Stancieri, for participating in this episode of Of Counsel. Um, it was a really special one.